Good morning. Continue in our summer series on the local church. Uh, if you are new here, uh, you should know that this kind of uh, topical series is uh, not usual for us. What we'll typically do is we'll go through a book of the Bible systematically as we were doing in the Gospel of Luke, uh, a series that, Lord willing, we'll get back to in just a few weeks. Uh, but we've taken a brief pause from the Gospel of Luke uh, that we might study together what the Bible has to say about uh, various aspects of the local church. And so we started the series by just defining what the church is. Uh, the church is God's precious people, purchased and preserved by Christ. We looked at the primacy of the preaching of the Word of God, right? How God uses His Word as a primary means to both save and to sanctify His people. We looked at the two offices of the church, uh, elders, deacons, uh, their qualifications, their functions, right? Elders are to shepherd, uh, teach the Word of God to the flock, uh, lead and direct the church and all its ministries, and deacons are those who are set apart by the congregation to serve in various ways uh, so that the elders can focus on the ministry of the word. And then we spent the last two weeks looking at the two ordinances of the church, uh, the two visible signs that Jesus has left for the church in terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is like the initiatory sign Right? A believer identifies with Jesus' death and resurrection, and typically that's done at the beginning of one's Christian walk. And then you have the Lord's Supper as kind of the ongoing sign. Uh, the believer remembers and proclaims the body and the blood of Jesus on a regular basis. Uh, and that's what we looked at last week. Well, this morning I want us to consider together the topic of a church membership. Now, church membership, uh, it's kind of a, a tough topic, but I think we all like membership in general. Like, I assume that uh, you, like me, are uh, a part of many different organizations. You are a member of many different organizations. Uh, I am a member of AAA, because one time my car broke down on the Garden State Parkway and I had to pay a lot of money to get that thing towed. And I said, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never making that mistake again. And so I signed up for AAA and I am a member of AAA. I'm also a member of Costco uh, because well, we're a family of six and we really do need that many paper towels and we really do eat that many eggs. Uh, plus... It's like the only place where you can feed your entire family for $15, right, in the Costco food court. And so I am a member of Costco. And I assume that you all are members of various organizations as well. What about church membership? Like, what even is church membership? Is it kind of like membership at AAA or membership at Costco? Is it like membership at AAA or Costco in that it really requires nothing of me except to keep paying my dues? And is it like a membership at AAA or Costco in that it's merely transactional, right? Like as long as I'm getting more than I'm giving, uh, it is worth it for me to be a member. Or is my membership at church kind of like uh, AAA and Costco in the sense that oh, I don't really care who else is a member, right? as long as I am getting my benefits that I have signed up for. Well, the answer to all three of those questions is a resounding no. 
uh, church membership is entirely different. But the question then is how? And so that's what we want to think about today. And we're going to do it in three parts. Uh, First, we're going to make the case uh, from the Bible for church membership. Then we're going to look at the benefits of church membership. And there's, there's many, but I want to consider five of them in particular. And then lastly, I want to close with a practical exhortation for those who are members of a church. But before we do any of that, right, let's pray. Let's ask that God would help us in this hour uh, to see and to receive truth from his word. Father, we thank you for the church that indeed you have redeemed for yourself a people for your own possession uh, saints from every tribe, tongue people and nation a father that you have now called us to be a city on a hill for your glory so God we pray that you would help us to understand the idea of church membership of what it means to be united as one body in Christ in order that we might faithfully carry out the mission to which you have called us and to be your witnesses. Please give us attentive minds and submissive hearts in this hour that we might approach your word reverently and, Lord, with humility. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start by considering the biblical case for church membership. And so point number one, if you're taking notes, the case... For church membership. So I think we should start with the definition. Uh, When I say church membership, uh, what I'm referring to is an identifiable group of believers covenanting to live the Christian life together. So let me repeat that. An identifiable group of believers covenanting to live out the Christian life together. Now our definition can get a lot more precise than that. Like there is this like affirmation of salvation aspect to membership. There is a gathering together and observing the ordinances aspect to membership. There is a discipline aspect to membership. And we're going to talk about those things. Uh, But at the very core, right, what is church membership? We're just going to go with this broad definition for now. Church membership is an identifiable group of believers covenanting to live out the Christian life together. So great we have our definition, but... More importantly, is it biblical? And some people have answered, no, it's not biblical. It's just a man-made invention because it's not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the Bible. And those people would be right uh, in the sense that there is no verse that we could point to that says, uh, you shall have church membership, uh, or you know, this is what church membership should look like. Uh, but you also couldn't find any verses in the Bible that directly define the Trinity, The Trinity is one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we understand that this Trinity is taught clearly in the scriptures because we have passages like the one we saw a few months ago in Luke chapter 3. Remember Jesus' baptism. Uh, The Son is baptized. The audible voice of the Father is heard. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And then there is this visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. And so Father, Son, Spirit are present simultaneously. They must be three persons, but all three are God, as Trinitarian benedictions would show us, like 2 Corinthians 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 
And so there is not one passage in the Bible, there is not one chapter, one verse in the Bible that says the word Trinity or clearly defines what the Trinity is. But when we consider what the Bible as a whole has to say about the nature and about the person of God, it becomes clear that God exists in Trinity. One God, three persons. Well, in the same way, there is not one chapter or one verse that explicitly says the words church membership or even clearly defines what church membership is, but when we consider what the Bible as a whole has to teach about the nature of the church, it becomes clear that church membership is a biblical idea. Because in the New Testament, we see that church membership is both exampled and implied. And so let's consider those one at a time. First, we see it by example. Uh, We see church membership exampled in the scriptures. Just take a quick walk through the book of Acts and just kind of think through the early church. The early church starts with 120 disciples in the upper room. They're praying. The Holy Spirit comes down on them. They start speaking in tongues, right? Foreign languages. And Peter preaches a sermon to those who have gathered to kind of see what's going on here. And look at verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pentecost. That's amazing. God uses Peter's sermon there to save some 3,000 people. 3,000 people received Peter's message and then were baptized, right, as the initiatory sign of their identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. But don't miss that last part of verse 41. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. You say, added to what? Well, there's clearly some defined, identifiable group of believers, the church, to which these 3,000 are being added. And what do these folks do now that they've been added into this identifiable body? Well, basically, all the different aspects of living out the Christian life together. Next verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number." Day by day, those who are being saved. Again, we have the idea of adding to their number. Adding to the identifiable group of believers who are living out the Christian life together. Let's skip ahead now to Acts 15. I want you to see something in verses 2 and 3. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So, who sent them? The church. But who is that? 
Is that referring to the universal church? Like every Christian in the world at that time, obviously not. If you look back at the end of chapter 14, the context makes it clear that they are in Syrian Antioch at this point. And so, are they being sent by every citizen of Syrian Antioch? No, of course not. Obviously, unbelievers would not be sending them. So who is sending them? Well, it's got to be some identifiable group of believers in Syrian Antioch, right? The church at Syrian Antioch. Look at verse 22 in the same chapter. It seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So now they're being sent back from Jerusalem to Syrian Antioch. And who is going with them? Well, men from among them, among the whole church. Well, how can you choose men from among a group unless that group is clearly defined? Or unless you have some form of church membership. And there's other passages and acts that we could go through, but hopefully I've made the point that church membership is exampled for us in the book of Acts. But also we see that church membership is implied in the scriptures. And what I mean by that is that there are certain practices that are clearly outlined for the church that make absolutely no sense unless you have some form of church membership. Unless you have some clearly defined group of believers who make up the church. So for example, consider church leadership. Uh, having elders over a church. Look carefully at what it says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen. We looked at this verse in detail when we talked about elders. Uh, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So let's think about that verse, that concept, uh, from two different perspectives. First, from the perspective of the average believer, okay, the command is to obey your leaders and submit to them. And now the question is, well, who is that referring to? Is that referring to all pastors of all churches? Like, are you all under the spiritual authority of Pastor Joey Gonzalez of Grace Bible Church on the east side, or uh, Pastor Ed Moore of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, or Pastor Chris Ortiz, who is the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Brooklyn. You see my point, right? No, the believer is to obey and submit to the leaders of their own local church, of which they are a member. Otherwise, the command is, is kind of meaningless. But second, consider it from the perspective of the elder, right? The clear teaching of that verse is that elders are going to be held accountable for people's souls. But then the question is, whose? Is it the universal church? Is it every believer who's ever lived? Obviously not. How about every person who's ever walked into one of the services of the church, one of the gatherings of the church? Well, how could that be? Because some of those people are clearly not even professing believers. No, the idea that elders are going to give an account for believers does not make sense unless you have some clearly defined group of believers for whom the elders of the church are accountable and responsible. And so church membership is implied in what the Bible teaches about church leadership. Also consider church discipline. We're going to talk more about what church discipline is in uh, just a few minutes, but for now, consider 
that one possible outcome of church discipline is what we would call excommunication, right? It's removing uh, the person from the church. Uh, Look at how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 5. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. From among who? Well, unless you have a clearly defined group of professing believers, right? Church membership from which someone can be removed, well, the whole idea of church discipline makes absolutely no sense. So point number one, the case for church membership. Uh, We see that church membership, right, the identifiable group of believers covenanting to live the Christian life together, well, that's both exampled in the book of Acts primarily, and it's implied in biblical concepts like church leadership, like church discipline that we see throughout the New Testament. So let's move on to point number two, reasons for church membership. So great, it's, it's in the Bible, right? I'm convinced, uh, by example and by inference. But why do it? Like, like what, what is the purpose of church membership? Let me give you five reasons. The first reason for church membership is to affirm someone as a believer, Uh, Church membership is essentially a local body saying of someone, like as best as we can tell, we believe this person is a Christian. Here's the thing. Everything else that I'm going to say is contingent on this because if the person is not a Christian, if they have not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then none of the other purposes of membership, right? Spiritual growth and practicing discipline and making decisions and carrying out the one another commands, right? we'll get to all those. Uh, but none of those apply if the person is not regenerate. And so joining the church does not start with, hey, you know what? I like the people here. I like the preaching here. Uh, I want to be a part of this church. Sign me up. No, joining the church starts with the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating a spiritually dead sinner, making them alive in Christ, allowing them to be born again. It starts with God saving a sinner by granting them faith and repentance in Jesus as Lord and Savior, which is why we have such an extensive membership process here. We ask people to attend for a while, Uh, not only so that they can get to know our doctrine and practice, but also so we can get to know their doctrine and practice. And then there's a written testimony, and there's a verbal testimony, because we want to be sure that you know the Lord, that you know and believe the gospel, that there's nothing in your life that would be antithetical to your profession. And then, right, like after all of that, then there's the membership class. Why such an extensive process? Because we want to be as sure as we can, acknowledging that we're not omniscient, right? We are not God the Holy Spirit. We are not the ultimate judge of anybody's soul. But we want to be as sure as we can that the membership of the church is made up of regenerate people. Because it's only regenerate people for whom the other reasons for membership even begin to apply. So let me just be crystal clear about something at this point. Becoming a member of a church does not save you. Becoming a member of a church does not save you. So if you're not a Christian, I am not telling you to become a member of a church. On the contrary, you should not become 
a member of a church because the church is God's precious people purchased and preserved by Christ. Uh, And you are not that yet. And so what you need to do is you need to believe the gospel. You need to believe the good news that Jesus died for sinners like you. That if you repent of your sins and you trust in Jesus, trust in Christ alone for salvation, you can have all of your sins forgiven because when Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, he died on the cross, he was not dying for his own sin because he never committed a sin. No, he was dying for sinners like you and like me. Taking our sins upon himself and suffering the wrath of God in our place so that instead of going to hell like we deserve, we can spend an eternity with him in heaven. And here's where that gospel ties to church membership. Because when God saves his people, he doesn't just like translate them into eternity. He doesn't just like whoosh them into heaven. No, he keeps them here in the world so that they might be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Right? So that they might be witnesses of his glory. Both to share that gospel to others that they might know Christ. And also through their good deeds to demonstrate that the transforming power of God is a real thing. Now, how are those people, those representatives of Jesus, right, those ambassadors for Christ, how are they identified as such? Well, the answer is church membership. It's membership at a local church. And so please do not hear me as saying that church membership makes one a Christian. No. But church membership does affirm one who already is a believer because it's the church's declaration that this person seems to be a genuine Christian. Which brings me to a second reason for church membership, which is for believers to grow together. Like in membership, the church affirms someone as a Christian and then that person and the church, they commit to one another that they might grow together as believers. But the New Testament is very, very clear that one of the primary means that God uses in the lives of his children to grow them, right, to keep them, uh, to preserve them to the end, is other believers, is the church. Uh, consider this passage from Hebrews 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And so you see that, right? The defense prescribed there against an evil, unbelieving heart is one another, right? That we would exhort one another. Or consider 1 Thessalonians 5. Uh, my, my focus is going to be on verse 11, but I want to read the broader passage. It's a little bit long, but just stay with me here. I want to read the broader passage so we get the context of why verse 11 is there. For you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him 
therefore, 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 encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So how do we live as children of light? How do we remain sober-minded? How do we persevere that we might obtain that salvation that comes through Christ? The answer is one another, encouraging and building one another up. And so I've been saying this throughout this series, but I'm going to say it again because this is important, right? Christianity is not just about your relationship with Jesus. Because God has purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And so we need to remember that when we gather, like we've gathered this morning, what we're doing is we are not just like sitting here worshiping God on our own, kind of having our own quiet time with Jesus while we're all in the same room. No, we are the body of Christ. Uh, We're interconnected with one another. We're living out the Christian life together. And one aspect of that is the corporate worship gathering. That's the imagery in 1 Corinthians 12, right? The church is a body. It's an interconnected unit that's dependent on one another so that if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so a second reason for church membership is that believers might grow, that we might grow in our Christian walks. Now maybe you're saying in response, well, can't I grow with other believers even if I'm not a member? And the answer is yes, you could, but you would be missing one of the primary avenues of growth that's impossible without church membership. Which brings me to my next reason for membership, which is to be held accountable and practice church discipline. This is something that can only happen in the context of membership. Now, church discipline... It's, it's one of those kind of scary phrases. But the Bible is clear that God disciplines his children. God disciplines the one he loves. And so he uses discipline to grow his children in holiness, uh, to increase his children in happiness. And so discipline is not a bad thing. And one of the primary instruments that God uses to discipline his children is church discipline. And so church discipline should not be like this scary thing because church discipline isn't just about excommunicating people. It's really this entire process of God using believers to help each other grow in holiness. And so consider this, right? Every time that someone in the church lovingly comes up to you and says, hey, brother, hey, sister, uh, the way that you spoke over there or or what you did over there or uh, kind of the choices that that you've been making, uh, that's not good. That's not in line with what God's word says. Uh, And they show you that from the scriptures and you see that and you repent and you change as a result. That's church discipline, right? That's God using the church as members do life together to lovingly correct his sinning child. And that whole process, well, it's outlined in some detail in Matthew 18. Let's look there. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Did you know that that verse was not about a poorly attended prayer meeting, but it's about church discipline? So there you go. When a believer sins against you, what do you do? The first thing you do is not to go and talk about them behind their back or to gossip about them or to subtly post about it on social media, right? It is not to harbor bitterness or resentment. It's to lovingly confront the believer between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, if he hears you and he repents, then great, right? Discipline has done its job, right? That is wonderful. And here's the thing. I would say that most discipline, it starts and ends there, right? With believers speaking the truth in love into one another's lives, producing repentance and restoration, right? And the gospel is at work in the lives of God's people. Praise God. But if he doesn't listen, if there's no repentance, well, then and only then, you've got to get other brothers or sisters involved. But again, if there's not repentance at that point, discipline needs to continue further. At this point, it's probably prudent uh, to involve the elders of the church, right? Because they are the ones who uh, shepherd and oversee the flock. But ultimately, right? Like if all else fails, the last step is always to tell it to the church. And again, if there's genuine repentance, again, at any point in this process, if there is genuine, true, godly sorrow, praise God, discipline has done its job and you need to go no further. But if there isn't, well, at that point, then you need to excommunicate the individual. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, where the church no longer counts the individual as one of them. And so the person is excluded from the Lord's table. And the church isn't pronouncing like this official declaration uh, of the state of the person's soul or anything like that. Like, now you've lost your salvation. No, it's not anything like that. What the church is saying is that we can no longer affirm this person's salvation because of the way in which they're living. But here's where church discipline ties into the concept of church membership. Because church discipline is not possible unless you're a member of the church. Like, if you're not a member of the church and you're caught in some sin, well, you can't be excommunicated from something that you're not a part of from the first place. And so a non-member could just, I don't know, disappear, no repercussions, because you're not under any formal accountability. Now, if that sounds like a good deal to you, like, wow, I can live however I want to with no accountability and no repercussions, well, that's not a believer's mentality. A believer's mentality should be, I want to live a holy life for the glory of God. And so I want these accountability structures, including church discipline, in my life. Because God has ordained them, and they are good for me, so that I can grow. Again, that is not possible unless you are a member of the church. And so the third reason for membership is that we might be held accountable and practice church discipline. The fourth reason for church membership is that we might make important decisions as a body. So at this church, uh, we practice something called congregationalism. 
Uh, and that's basically the idea that the final authority, the final court of appeal on important things like membership and discipline and leadership and the statement of faith and things like that, uh, the final court of appeal is not a denomination. Uh, it's not uh, the bishop uh, who's over a bunch of churches. It's not a presbytery, which is like an association of a bunch of churches. It's not any outside entity. Right? It is the congregation itself. I think we clearly see that at play in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we read from 1 Corinthians 5 earlier, right? This is a case of church discipline. Look at what Paul says to the church at Corinth. When you, you, the church at Corinth, are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there's that idea of the church as an assembly. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul tells the Corinthian church that when they are assembled, they are to excommunicate this man, because again, the final authority for matters of membership and discipline resides with the church, not with the Apostle Paul. And let me skip ahead to 2 Corinthians, and here Paul's writing about kind of the opposite case, a repentant sinner. Maybe it's the same guy as 1 Corinthians 5, maybe it's not, we don't know. But look at how he affirms that the authority on what to do with this member, again, ultimately rests with the congregation. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority... And so by the majority there seems to imply some kind of congregational voting in the decision-making. This punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So the New Testament makes it pretty clear that one of the important reasons for membership is to make important decisions, like those on church membership and discipline. Another important category of decisions in which a congregational authority is important is in guarding and preserving the gospel. Like you'll notice that most of the epistles, well, most of them are written to churches. And they charge churches with knowing solid biblical doctrine and guarding against false teachers and false doctrine. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about those who have itching ears and they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And so, yes, false teachers will be held accountable. The New Testament is very clear on that. But there's also a level of accountability for the congregation, right? Congregations who accumulate for themselves false teachers. And so just to be clear, right, if I, as your pastor, if I preach a false gospel— or I stop preaching the gospel and I start preaching other things. It is your responsibility as a congregation to remove me because you are called to guard and preserve the gospel in this church. And so reason number four for church membership. Well, as a church member, you play an important role in making decisions like membership, discipline, leadership, right, guarding the doctrinal purity of the church. Now one caveat to everything I'm saying here. Uh, congregationalism does not mean that every single decision in the church needs to be decided congregationally, like democratically, by majority vote or anything like that. Uh, that would not only be logistically just disastrous, uh, but it would also make the leadership that the congregation has entrusted to the elders of the church completely meaningless. 
Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. And so I think the New Testament picture is that elders lead and the congregation entrusts the elders to rule and to make decisions. But the final authority on big decisions like membership, who is recognized as a Christian, discipline, who is not recognized as a Christian, offices, who is recognized as an elder or a deacon, doctrine, what the church's statement of faith says, that should ultimately be decided by the congregation. Now, in a healthy church in which the elders are leading by preaching and teaching the word of God, well, since the final authority in the church rests with Jesus and his word, if the elders are leading by that and teaching that, then the congregation generally, usually, typically, will follow the lead of their elders. Fifth and final reason for church membership, uh, there are more, but we're just going to focus on these five, is that we might meaningfully carry out the one another commands. You know what I mean when I say the one another commands. I'm referring to all those commands in the New Testament that say something one another, or do one another, do something with one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Pray for one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Well, if we're going to be New Testament Christians, we have to do those things. But again, here's the question. uh, With whom, uh, to whom, are we to do all of those one another commands? Am I to love and serve every believer on this earth? Am I to love and to serve every believer in this city? Well, in one sense, I would argue the answer is yes, right, as opportunity affords it. If I run into a believer in this city or somewhere in the world, I am to love them and to serve them and all of those things to a certain extent, uh, but in a more meaningful way, like in a more purposeful way. Remember that our definition of church membership is an identifiable group of believers covenanting to live out the Christian life together. Well, we need to be able to do this with some identifiable group of people that we can love and serve and exhort and admonish and so on. And so this is where the idea of a covenant comes in. Remember that definition, the part of our definition that talks about believers covenanting together? A covenant is one of those kind of like scary words, but it's, it's not. It's just an agreement, right? It's an agreement that people make. In this context, it's an agreement that members make with other members of the church to live out these one another commands together. And you say, wow, covenant, that sounds so formal and so rigid and so mechanical. Uh, those of you who were here for Christian and Ksenia's wedding, uh, the, the best part of the ceremony, like by far and away, was watching Adam Goltzer trying his best to not spill the foot washing water. But the second best part of the wedding, I'm joking here, the best part of the wedding was their vows, right? The vows that Christian and Ksenia read to one another. Those are vows that they wrote themselves. Like as they read those vows, it was impossible not to be moved in your heart. And none of us was sitting here saying, vows, promises, covenant. This is so informal. This is so formal. And this is so rigid and so mechanical and loveless. No, of course not. Because it was an expression, an overflow of what was in their hearts for one another. 
Well, in the same way, a church covenant. Yeah, I guess if you just read a church covenant, it can feel formal and rigid and mechanical and just kind of going through the motions. But if it reflects a heart of love for the other members of the congregation, like if it reflects our true desire to push one another towards godliness and Christ-likeness, then it is a beautiful and wonderful thing. So one way to think about church membership is it's kind of what like inevitably happens when Christians just do what the New Testament tells them to do. Right? Being committed to one another. Uh, developing relationships so that we might fulfill these one another commands. Right? That's basically what membership is all about. And so those are five reasons for church membership. Right? To affirm someone as a believer uh, for the purpose of spiritual growth. Uh, to practice accountability and church discipline. Uh, to make important decisions as a body, and to meaningfully carry out the one another commands. And so let me just wrap up with an application point. It's kind of an exhortation uh, for members of this church. Or uh, perhaps you're a member of another local church and you're just visiting with us this morning. This also applies to you. Uh, I'm specifically speaking to those of you who are members or will become members of some faithful gospel preaching local church. My exhortation to you is to be a good church member. Be a good church member. Consider the reasons for church membership that we've discussed and really commit to living those things out with your brothers and sisters. Now that starts with uh, just regularly attending, right? Coming consistently on Sunday mornings. I read somewhere recently that the typical Southern Baptist church in our country about 35 to 40% of its members attend on any given Sunday morning. That's one of those statistics that you read it and you're like, is that really true? Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, not neglecting to meet together. What are those 60 to 65% of people doing? Now, I realize that a large driver of that statistic is just unregenerate church membership. Right? And it's a lack of care for membership roles. Like unsaved people, they become members of the church and then they don't come to the church because they're not saved, but they're not removed from membership. Uh, and so the membership roles just don't reflect in any way who is actually part of the body. But another driver of that is that many Christians who are members of churches they don't realize their obligation. They don't realize that as a member of the body, like I have covenanted to gather together regularly. Uh, to be there every Sunday morning, not because it's a religious obligation, not because it earns points with God or anything like that, but simply because you have covenanted to the other believers of that church and your absence, your regular absence, hinders you from ministering to them and being ministered to. And of course, providential hindrances come up. Right? Sometimes you're sick. Sometimes you're out of town. Uh, sometimes there's an emergency at home or at work. Uh, but like I said before, like if gathering with the people of God is not a top priority in your life, like if it's basically just a game time decision every Sunday morning, uh, then simply put, you are not faithfully fulfilling the obligations of the covenant that you made with the other members of the church. 
So you need to be here every Sunday morning unless providence hinders. But I think being a faithful church member, like living out those reasons for membership that we've discussed, I think it's got to go even further than that. Like further than just Sunday morning attendance. Because look again at Hebrews 10, right? I didn't read the whole verse. Let us consider to... Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that passage is not just saying, go to church on Sundays, although you should go to church on Sundays. It's also saying that we need to be encouraging one another. But can we really do that by just coming at 11 o'clock, sitting through the service, and then leaving right afterwards. Just think about the reasons for church membership that we discussed. That we might grow together as believers. That we might hold one another accountable and practice church discipline. That we might make important decisions together as a body. That we might meaningfully carry out the one another commands. Right? To do all of those things well to the glory of God, well, it requires a commitment to one another that goes beyond just the hour and a half that we sit together in the sanctuary. It requires us to develop meaningful relationships so that we might grow in love and grow in unity as a body. I think it requires us to eat meals with one another and grab coffee with one another and meet up for lunch with one another that we might share what's going on in our lives, that we might pray for one another. How can you pray for something that you don't know about that person? That we might exhort one another. It requires us to actually spend time together, that we might get to know one another, so that we might hold each other accountable and help each other to grow. Members of First Baptist Church, right now I'm just speaking to the members of this church. So many of you are doing all of these things so well already. I am so thankful for that. Right? Like many of you are really good church members. But let us continue, right, as a body, as members one of another, let's continue to press on that we might do these things all the more, right? There is always room for us to grow that we might be a healthy church body to the glory of God. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching from the New Testament on how we ought to be members one of another. Father, we pray that we who are the members of this church would take seriously the reasons for church membership and the doctrinal basis for church membership and that we would truly seek to live out these commands with one another for your glory. God, help us by the Holy Spirit to apply these things to our lives that we might be a church uh, that brings you uh, much glory and praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name.